starting in chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was what had once um, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will it will what is permanent have glow over his face so that the Israelites might, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for this day, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains uplifted um, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come um, and that you would fill us all with the Spirit and that we would have uh, minds to be able to see and understand your word. And Holy Spirit, you would take uh, your word and that you would use it to transform our hearts. And for those that are uh, on the spot and they would put their faith in Christ and for us that do, that we would have uh, an enhanced understanding of the gospel, that our minds and our hearts would be uh, just enamored with Jesus and that you would use the preaching of your word, God, to um, encourage us and equip us to fulfill the Great Commission. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us. Uh, Lord, help me this morning uh, preach your word faithfully. Help me say all the things in your word that are true and helpful and the things that would be uh, not true or unhelpful. Keep me from saying those things. I am totally dependent upon you, God. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a tiny review for those. We've been in Corinthians long enough that I don't feel like I have to do the review every single time. But just to bring you up to speed a little bit, uh, we're in 2 Corinthians. And this is really the fourth letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians. And so we have his second and his fourth letter. We don't have the first letter. Um, he references it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and then the second letter he wrote is 1 Corinthians. We don't have the third letter. He references it in 2 Corinthians, but we have the fourth. And that's what 2 Corinthians is. Um, but as we, get to, uh, as we get to 2 Corinthians, it's one of the most personally revealing of all of his letters. Uh, and so the entire letter of 2 Corinthians is broken down into kind of three big sections. Now, going into 2 Corinthians... Paul and the Corinthians had had a big dispute, if you will. Paul had written what, in that third letter what's known as the severe letter. Uh, they had se- a lot of sin going on. And in the, the third letter, the severe letter, he rebukes them pretty heavily. And he knows that they're feeling sad and he knows that they're feeling down. And so uh, he writes 2 Corinthians before he goes there to try to help them have a little bit of reconciliation, help them see what, where they've done wrong, but help them also see that he's ready to reconcile, he's ready to forgive. And he sends 2 Corinthians to them because he's going to come there later and and he wants there to be a, a softening of the relationship so that he sees them face to face. Things are good. And so uh, in the very beginning of 2 Corinthians, you can, you can see that as he's written it, that he's talking about comfort. He's talking about reconciliation. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about the fact that he, he's an apostle and his ministry is valid. And the people that have been down talking to him are invalid. Uh, and so he's covering all that in, in these first few sermons that we're looking at. And so the whole kind of first section of second Corinthians is in chapters one through seven. And that's where Paul's trying to reconcile with the Corinthian believers and also defending his apostolic position as in I'm an apostle 
And since I'm an apostle and I have my direct revelation from Jesus, the things that are say are true and you should believe them. Then he's doing that all in chapters one through seven, which is where we are. We just read chapter three and we're picking up in that. When he gets to chapters eight and nine, because Paul's trying to gather some offerings for them where he is uh, from the Corinthian church and take it all the way back to Jerusalem. In chapters eight and nine, he talks about what Christian generosity looks like. And then when you get to chapters 10 through 13, those are his final closing uh, challenges that he's going to give to the Corinthians. That's later on. But we're in chapters 1 through 7. Specifically, we're in chapter 3 where he's doing reconciliation with them. So uh, in the very first sermon we looked at in verses 1 through 11, Paul talks about comfort uh, and the need for comfort. Because, again, he had already had this interaction with them with that severe letter where they were feeling sad and they needed to be comforted. And so he writes towards comfort in that first 11 verses. And then as he finishes that chapter, he talks about the need for reconciliation with him and the Corinthians. And from that, we can see the broad need for all Christians to be reconciled because Christ Jesus has reconciled us. We see the need for Christians to reconcile. And then if you're going to reconcile, then the offended party must be willing to forgive. And so as we go into the next chapter, the the next sermon that we looked at, Paul talks about the need for forgiveness that he has already extended to the Corinthian church and that they need to also extend to the the offended bro- the, the offender, the brother that has done that. And he talks about the need for forgiveness. And as he talks about the need for forgiveness, um, in the next section, which we looked at last week, Paul is starting to defend his apostolic position. And what he, we looked at last week is uh, he talks about what competent men, he's talking about himself. These are the, these are the qualities are, uh, of a distinct, uh, competent minister. And so now, not everybody is a minister as, a, as in full time, but everybody is in some sense a minister of the gospel because in Second Corinthians 5, he tells us we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. And Matthew 28, he tells us we all are to fulfill the Great Commission. And so while we looked at last week's sermon and we talked about uh, these competencies of a good minister of the gospel, we broadened it out so that everybody realizes, well, I'm supposed to have these competencies, not just the guys that work for the church full time, but me as well. And so we're in that same vein of Paul talking about ministry uh, and he's going to, he's going to do something. So well, look at verse five. Remember last week, we we're talking about what it means to be a competent minister. And Paul's saying to be a competent minister, uh, I don't find my sufficiency in myself. I don't do this in my own power. As a minister of the gospel, I I find all of my sufficiency in Christ and I do it in his energy. So if you look at that in verse five, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So he's talking about not just ministers, but everybody. And he's saying as a minister, the only way I can ever do ministry long-term is because of Jesus. And then he says, who has made us sufficient to be ministers. And then he says this, of a new covenant. And the last little point we said is that ministers of the gospel, competent ministers are the ones who talk about the gospel. That's what, that was the last point we made last week. Um, and so what we're going to do this week and what, what, what Paul's doing this week in verses 7 through 18, as he finishes that idea of competent ministers and he says that they're the ones that preach the gospel, he goes into this, this kind of side description about the new covenant. And so from 7 to 18, he's still in the idea of competent ministers, but 7 through 18, Paul takes this excursus of some, some sorts to talk about the gospel, to talk about the new covenant. So if you read, it says... Um, to make us ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the, le- for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And then he goes, now, if the ministry of death, and now he's going to in 7 through 18, talk about from 7 to 18, what the distinct qualities of the new covenant are. And so he's still in the same idea of defending his apostolic uh, apostleship. But as we get to this section, this section is just beautiful. 7 through 18 is beautiful. There are not too many imperatives Um, just a lot of indicatives as in there's not a whole lot of things like here's what you need to do here's what you need to do here's what you need to do it's not it's none of those things really these are just here's what the gospel is here's what the gospel is here's what the gospel is let these truths wash over you and just renew your mind renew your heart and let you say amen thank you christ for doing these things to me so there won't be I, i will have some at the end there won't be a whole lot of like oh that's what i have to do you know Love your wife, be a good neighbor, preach the gospel more. There won't be those kind of like direct, this is what I'm supposed to do. Instead, in this excursus, as Paul talks about what the distinct qualities of the new covenant are, the point is he's trying to help um, these second these Corinthian believers know what the gospel is. Now, here's what Paul's doing, which is amazing, right? Um, as we look at this, he's 
as he's talking about the gospel, he, and as he's comparing and contrasting the ministry, saying the ministry of the old covenant and the ministry of the new covenant. And as he's comparing and contrasting the ministry of the old covenant and the ministry of the new covenant, he's comparing Moses, who was one of the main ministers of the old covenant, with himself. So he's still trying to help them see that in the ministry of the new covenant, what I'm doing, and you shouldn't be fooled by these false apostles. What I'm doing as a minister of the new covenant is valid and real, but he's going to compare it with Moses. He's comparing himself with Moses. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, right? But as he does that, he talks about the new covenant. And so we're going to key in on those awesome things about the new covenant. But the bigger thing that he's doing is he's comparing himself to Moses, which is a big deal, right? And he's saying... My ministry is better than Moses's. That's in essence what he's doing. So that's what in verses one through six, when he's talking about competent ministers, he's going to compare himself with Moses and say, my ministry is, is valid. Uh, and so the entire backdrop then of verses seven through 18, the entire backdrop is X and he's coming down and the, all the uh, Israelites are worshiping the golden calf, etc. Um, but we're going, I want to read just so I don't have time to read all three of those chapters, but I'm going to read the, the end of 34, just so you can, you can go read 32 through 34 this week. Uh, but the entire backdrop of what Paul's doing as he's comparing himself with the ministry of Moses, uh, it comes from Exodus 32 through 34. As a matter of fact, one, uh, commentator says the right understanding of Exodus 32 through 34 is being exposited by Paul to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 7 through 18. If you want to understand Exodus 32 through 34, read 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, because Paul exposes it for us. But I'm just going to read 34, 29 through 35, so you can get a full idea of that Old Testament history part. So when Moses came, this is verse 29, Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony, these are the Ten Commandments in his hands, he came down from the mountains. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him because he had been with God, and he's all super bright, right? You can't look at it. It's like me outside in the summer um, without jeans on. So uh, verse 31, but way, way brighter, right? Way brighter because he had been with God. Mine are just... Never seen son. Verse 31. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Uh, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the kind of backdrop of what Paul's talking about. When, when Moses veils himself and Paul's saying, I'm an unveiled minister. And he's going to compare and contrast those things in 7 through 18. Um, just to give us a good understanding of how deep 7 through 18, Scott Haifman Uh, One commentator says the theological heart and structural turning point of the entire letter is in this section. Um, Garland, the commentator, he says the profusion, (laughs) that's a fun word, profusion of scholarly works trying to unpack the meaning of chapter 3, 7 through 18 attests to its difficulty. In other words, lots of people have written lots of things on these verses. It's quite difficult. And so because so many people have written so much, you can get an idea that this is a difficult text. Um, and so the issue at stake, which is, so it's kind of making it easy for us all to understand is Paul is helping us understand the differences between the ministries of the old Testament and the new covenant, not the old covenant and the new covenant themselves, but instead the ministries of the old covenant, the people that actually carry out the ministries of the old covenant, the people that actually carry out the new covenant. Because again, Paul's trying to help the Corinthians see my work as a minister is valid. And so he's, he's comparing and contrasting the ministries of the Old and New Covenants. The difference between the way the minister performs their function as an Old Testament minister and the way the, 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 the person, the minister performs their function as a New Testament minister. Moses versus Paul. That's what he's doing. 
The Old Testament minister Moses was a special priest or, 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 or prophet or whatever. Pick my God. He was unique. He was kind of an intermediary between God and man, performing the rituals necessary, salvation for Israel. This is what the Old Testament minister did. The New Testament minister, Paul, has now, has now been given to all Christians. And further, we're not priests serving as mediators. Instead, given the ministry of reconciliation, telling people how to be saved because Jesus has actually given us our salvation on the cross. So there's a a difference. And so all that Paul's doing here is trying to compare and contrast those things. But as we're looking at it, what I want to do is draw out the distinct qualities of the new covenant so that our hearts will be blessed by this. This is meant to bless our soul to see what Christ has done for us in the new covenant as we look at the ministry of the new covenant, what the ministers do. So um, we're actually going to go into verse 6. Uh, I know we looked at verse 6 last time, but there is a distinct quality of the gospel of of the new covenant that I want to make sure that we see. Uh, And so um, Paul is going to break into this, as I said, this magnificent tangent of the new covenant, what it is and what it does. And so as you hear this, um, you may say, oh, I know the gospel. I know what this does. Click, click. I can I can go, you know, get the gospel is meant to be preached to us every day, as Jerry Bridges would say. And so we want to hear these great truths and let it just re- rejuvenate us and re- reaffirm our affections for Jesus. And so um, first thing, let's look at verse 6. For the letter, I'm, I'm looking at verse 6b, the, the end of it. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the first distinct quality of the new covenant uh, is this, is that the new covenant this is the gospel. You can say the new covenant, you can say the gospel. It's the same thing. The good news of Jesus, all synonymous terms. The new covenant gives life. That's number one. The new covenant gives life. The new covenant gives you life. You once were dead, but now the gospel gives you life. The, the new covenant is being juxtaposed in this particular text specifically with law. Law brings death. Good news, new covenant brings life. Uh, One commentator says about the role of the law, he says, the law kills us in at least three ways. First, it kills us by killing joy, peace, and hope, and replacing them with frustration, sorrow, hopelessness, and guilt that comes from one's inability to be able to obey the law. Secondly, sinners' inability to keep the law uh, perpetrates spiritual death. Finally, violated law becomes the basis of eternal condemnation, actually killing those who are seeking to be saved by trying to keep the law. Instead of recognizing their inability to keep the law and allowing that to drive them to Christ, they instead continue to follow the dead works of sacramentalism, rituals, and ceremonies. This is what the law does. The law is powerless to save. The law only brings death. The new covenant is what brings us life. How is it that it does this? How does the new covenant bring us life? Romans 8, 2 says it this way. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so we, we don't have to keep the law anymore because Christ has now kept the law for us. And whenever we put our faith in Christ, we no longer are receiving the death of the law. But because Christ kept it perfectly, we now get life. We are in Christ And when we're in Christ, we are free from the law and death that he kept it perfectly for us. And so now, if we repent and we believe, the gospel gives us life. No longer death. No longer need to keep the law. But instead, the good news of the covenant brings life to us. It brings life to us. Something that we were totally incapable of getting in ourselves. That's the first uh, thing that we see regarding the new covenant, which is, unbelievably beautiful. I don't know which one's my favorite, but every one of these are good. The law brings life. The second one, look at verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death, that's the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, um, people can start saying, well, if that's the case, then the law has no glory, only the gospel has glory. And Paul's not wanting them to think that the, that the law doesn't have glory. So um, in verses 7 through 11, you'll notice a theme. If you read it several times, there'll be a word that pops out over and over and over and over, the word glory. In our ESV, you'll see it 10 times. 
Um, in the Greek, it's actually just eight. Uh, our ESV writers have supplied an extra two. Doxa, glory. Glory is in there over and over in 7 through 11. So the theme what you're going to see is glory. And the reason why is the Corinthian people could say, well, the law must not have no glory. The, all the glory is in the gospel. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not the case. I'm not saying that the law doesn't have glory. Remember Moses? But how much more does the new covenant then have glory over the law? So he's not trying to say the law has no glory, but he's saying that the the new covenant gospel comes with unbelievable glory. So that's what he's doing here. He's he's comparing the glory of the law and the new covenant um, versus the new covenant. So now if the ministry of death, that's, that's the law carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not even gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Like it's that's that that old covenant's ending and the new covenant's coming. Will not the ministry of the spirit, this is the new covenant of the gospel, have even more glory? And of course, the answer is yes. He's wanting you to say, yes, it will. And then if you keep going, verse nine, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the law. If that brought glory, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So he's helping us see that the ministry of the gospel far exceeds it in glory. And so remember, in the big picture, what he's doing is he's comparing his ministry of Moses and himself and saying, Moses' ministry had some glory, but the ministry of the new covenant, way more glory. But as we're looking at this, look what it says in verse 9. He calls it this, this term, uh, the ministry of righteousness. It's a glorious thing that he talks about because in this, he's saying that in, we have this thing called, the descriptive name Paul uses, uh, the ministry of of righteousness, the ministry of righteousness. The new covenant far surpasses the old covenant because it provides what the old covenant could not provide, namely righteousness. So not only does the new covenant give us life, the new covenant also gives us righteousness. That's the second thing. The new covenant produces righteousness. Now remember, this is not a righteousness that you have achieved in and of yourself. This is an alien righteousness that Jesus himself has that has been imputed into you or counted to you on your behalf. It's not something that you've just conjured up all of a sudden. No, Jesus's righteousness has actually been imputed to you. You've received his righteousness because we can't do that. There's no way they can do it. Paul expounded the righteousness is chapter 321. But now the righteousness of God, righteousness of God has been manifested Apart from the law. So if you keep the law, you're righteous. But now he's saying the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, here it is, through faith in Christ Jesus. But good luck with that. Believe. So you can, you can achieve righteousness if you can keep the law. But good luck with that. Like, you're never going to do it, right? There's another way to achieve righteousness. And that is, since Christ did it, put my faith in him. Repent and believe, and his righteousness is therefore now imputed to me or counted for me on my behalf. And this is what Paul is telling us. Before Christ, um, trying to achieve, Paul thought, like, uh, if, you, if you look at the life of Christ, he, he, he talks about this in, in the letter to the Philippians. When you, you look at chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and following, he talks about his life before Christ, before the Damascus Road. And he's like, listen, before I came to know Christ, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, if anybody really kept the law, I kept them all. And so he actually says, in my mind as a Pharisee, I believed through law keeping that I had actually achieved righteousness. But after he realized, after he became a Christian, he realized all he had ever achieved was condemnation because the opposite of righteousness is just condemnation. That, and that's all he had ever received. But after Christ, after he had was achieving condemnation, he wrote all this law keeping where I thought I was achieving righteousness and all I ever was doing was achieving condemnation. He wrote about this righteousness that he had now achieved through Christ, not through law keeping. And this is what he says. This is how he describes that. When you get to verse 7 in, in Philippians 3, that whole idea where he thought he was righteous, but he wasn't. And now he realizes the only thing that matters is Christ. He looks back at this running down the treadmill of the law, trying to keep it, thinking he was achieving righteousness. And this is how he describes trying to achieve righteousness through law keeping. Verse 7. 
But whatever gain I had, it means any, any inches I made forward in keeping law, thinking I was awesome, anything I ever did by law keeping, I now, in, in comparison to Christ, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything in my former life as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And then he says this, I count them as rubbish. In our ESV, it tells us rubbish. In the Greek, it's skubala. This is, this is a strong word for dung. This is a, a really, really strong word for dung. He's saying, keeping law keeping and thinking you're going to be saved by that way, that really should just be counted as dung, rubbish. It's, it's worth nothing. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because that's impossible, but that which comes through, here it is, verse 9, faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The new covenant alone is the only thing that provides righteousness before God and is only through Jesus Christ. So that's the second thing that we see here, is that the new covenant produces righteousness in us. Something that we are incapable of producing. Now, uh, if you caught it, Paul said something absolutely extraordinary. He's saying that the ministry uh, that he has is far more glorious than the ministry of Moses. Look at it again so you can hear what he says. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters and stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit, which Paul's like, that's what I have, will be even more, be even with more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, what Moses had, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Paul's saying there that my ministry is actually more glorious than Moses's ministry. He's saying that it's more glorious than the ministry of Moses. Now, that's pretty amazing, right? You think about that. If, if I were to just say, hey, my ministry is more glorious than Moses. Um, you'd be like, dude, you need to watch it. You know, like you can't be saying that. That's crazy talk. Moses is like, it's Moses. And that's what Paul's saying. And actually, we're going to, as we keep going, we're going to see that that's actually the case for all of us. And the reason why is the veiling and the unveiling and the difference between those two. So um, if you're reading this, a skeptical reader could, a Paul could say something like this. So we're going to keep going, but there's a little, a skeptical person could say, okay, if, if I see here in the end of verse 7 that it says the old covenant is being brought to an end. Okay, so uh, glory 1.0 was law, and that's being brought to an end. Then that means glory 2.0 is the ministry of the Spirit. Like it's the, it's the better version, right? But um, does that mean that a new OS is coming out again? Like is, is there going to be, if, if 3.0, is, there, is it just... One little new thing after another, because if, if one's ending and there's a new one, well, I'm used to phones that always get updated and OSs that always get updated and all that kind of stuff. Surely there's glory 3.0, and when that's gone, glory 4.0, and glory 5.0. A skeptical reader could read that and say, what's the next update in the glory of, of God's OS? Like, what's, what's the next update? Um, that's where it leads us into the next distinct quality. We're going into what would be the third distinct quality is this. There is no 3.0 update. There's no such thing. As, as a matter of fact, um, it's wrong to even think of the ministry of the Spirit as 2.0. And I, I brought that whole thing up so you could say, that's your fault, Fudd, fine. Um, because I'm trying to reiterate, I'm trying to illustrate my point that I'm trying to make is, there is no glory 3.0. It's the old covenant, which had glory, and there's the new covenant, which has infinite glory and there is nothing else ever coming. That's it. There's no, there's no update. The ministry of the Spirit or the gospel is the new covenant and it is forever. And that's what Paul teaches in verses 10 through 11. He's saying there's no update. It's permanent and that's it. This is the new covenant forever, which really, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1 and you start reading in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when you get to Genesis 3, 15, 16, when the, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, whenever you read that, it's 315 or 16. Um, that, that's actually the original plan from all, all time. You have, you have the old covenant. You have uh, w- what we've read uh, in Exodus um, and 
chapter 20, 19, uh, 1 through 5, this old covenant in the, in the Old Testament. But the new covenant in the Old Testament is told to us in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. There, it's always been the glory of the new covenant has always been the, the original uh, plan A. And so what we have here is uh, that there is no update and what he's going to tell us in 10 and 11 is that this, this covenant is permanent. You can see in the end of 7, the old covenant's being brought to an end. Now we get to verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Which once was the old covenant has, has brought to no glory because the new covenant has surpassed it. Verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. See the word permanent there? That's, that's the point he's trying to, I'm trying to make here, is that this new covenant is it, and it's forever. Which brings us to our third distinction of the new covenant, which is this. The new covenant is permanent. The new covenant is forever. It never ends. Like the shine on Moses' face was going to end, the glory of the law was being brought to an end. But... The glory of the new covenant never ends. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 13, talking about this, says it this way. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, the old covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And now the new covenant is coming. Paul explains to us that this old vanishing way, as, as in Hebrews 13, the new covenant is not the next iteration of glory and said it is the only final iteration it's permanent forever endless eternal it's permanent forever god tells us that this new testament covenant is going to be forever which is awesome that means we don't have to like pull the little thing and download and, and see spinning is there going to be an update do I, do I have to do something different god is this gospel only going to last for a little bit I've I got to go up to app check. I'm an Apple guy. So Apple check prefer, updates. Okay, nothing. Uh, is God going to change the rules on me? Is there a different gospel now that's going to come later? No. It's this one and this one only. That, why is that something that you need to hear? Why is that something that should fill you with joy? Why is that something that you should not just be ho-hum about and say, okay, I got that. Gospel's forever. That sounds good. Um, it's because... The new covenant gospel will never be superseded by another gospel. Christ's death on the cross was final forever. Amen. That's really good news. The new covenant can never be supplemented by another gospel. It has no lacking. It means that God didn't save you 75%. God didn't save you 99%. God has saved you 100%. The gospel has no need for supplements. The gospel is also... Um, God's final word to man then. That means that we can believe with confidence and we can actually tell others with confidence, this is the good news of Jesus. Believe, you can receive life, you can receive righteousness. It's forever. And then there's a whole lot more I'm going to talk about. It it gives you hope. Um, On and on and on and on, which is what brings us to the next one. So in verse 12, you have the word since. Now, uh, some translations might say therefore, which is about the same as since. This is the Greek word un. So sometimes we have it translated as since. Sometimes we have it translated as therefore. And obviously, when you see the word therefore, you're supposed to know what it's therefore, meaning look above you and the previous section, because based on everything you've just read, now what follows is going to be an explanation of what you just read. And that's what's going on here. Since, also translated as therefore, is since based on all the glory of the ministry of the new covenant that's been given to us, since based on all that, we have something extraordinary, namely hope. We have hope. Unbelievers don't have hope like we have hope. We have endless hope, which is the fourth distinction of the new covenant. The new covenant brings hope. Why is there hope in the new covenant, but not in the old covenant? Now, I'm not saying that the Old Testament saints weren't hopeful because they served Yahweh. So, of course, they were hopeful, but it's not the same. The old covenant doesn't bring hope like the new covenant brings hope. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, it says it this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. For since the law 
has been but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. This is why the new covenant, the old covenant brought no hope. Is because, you know what they had to do the next year? Kill more animals. You know what they had to do the next year? Kill more animals. You know what they had to do the next year? Kill more animals. Exactly. And so there's no hope in that, right? I got to do it again and again and again. And if you compare and contrast that with the New Testament, Christ's sacrifice once for all, that's it. I have hope. If you keep reading in, in Hebrews 10, otherwise they would have not ceased to... Uh, to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder. Here it is a reminder of sins every year. That's no hope forever for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why there's no hope compared to the new covenant. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sins. You have, here it is, in burnt offerings and sins offerings, you have taken no pleasure. They are inter, uh, intermediary. They have, they have no long lasting consequence. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so when we look at the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, the reason why the old covenant doesn't bring hope like the new covenant is, you know what I got to do next year? I have no, no for surety that my sins are forgiven unless I kill more animals. And he tells us the, the, the death of these animals doesn't ever take away all of your sins. And so, in the New Covenant, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, we don't use that word uttermost too much, right? To the uttermost. It means this. It means completely and forever. Completely and forever. God is able to save completely and forever, 100% forever. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, since through him he always lives to make intercession for them. One commentator says, Hope, then, therefore, is the confident belief that God will and has fulfilled all the promises of the new covenant. God will and has Fulfill all the promises of the new covenant. This word hope in the Greek is elpis. This is confident expectation with a little parenthetical because the idea is confident expectation in the fact that salvation is being given to me by God. That's what we have in the new covenant. Confidence, expectation. This hope is so crucial to the Christian life. As I said, those outside of Christ are hopeless They search and they search for something besides Christ only to find that they can never find hope because unless they have Jesus, it will never be given to them. There is no hope outside of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us this priceless treasure at salvation called hope. Now, sure, that feeling of having hope is subjective. I get it. It is subjective. Sometimes it's difficult to explain, like to an unbeliever. Try talking to an unbeliever why you have hope. Notice that you start clawing at subjective language to try to say, it's just, I I feel like, I just, I just know. And I just, this is confident expectation, right? It's it's hard to say. Um, But we have this confident hope that Jesus is going to save us. And only Jesus gives, as 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this, though. Don't miss this. In verse 13, based on the glory of the new covenant, you have in this new covenant, as I said, the new covenant brings hope. Now, what does... Hope then therefore give you. I've just talked, unpacked for a little while exactly what the new covenant hope gives you. Don't miss what hope gives you. It's in verse 13. Since we have such a hope, you see those last four words? Four? Yeah. We are very bold. We are very bold. Not just bold. We are very bold. Since you and I have hope, we should be so bold. Haifman commentator says, 
this boldness refers to a shamelessness in one's behavior that leads to free, courageous, and very open manner of speech, obviously about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So whenever we're around unbelievers and we're like, I hope, I don't, the gospel, I'm going to tell you, but it makes me nervous. The gospel gives us such hope that we have an incredible boldness to tell unbelievers the good news of Jesus. The Great Commission, because of the hope, is something that we should have amazing courage to tell them, or boldness, as Paul says here. No matter how severe the opposition, hope makes us bold. Hope makes us bold. That's what he tells us here. Since we have such a hope, we are bold. Now, when we get to verse 13, Paul is going to start depicting himself as the better minister than Moses. This is Pretty bold stuff right here. Watch verse 13. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses, whenever he was shining, would put a veil over himself so that he didn't shine in front of the Israelites. Uh, and that, that was coming to an end. What we see here is this uh, harden that's coming to Israelites uh, because they weren't, uh, their, their minds were hardened because they weren't uh, able to see the glory of Christ. Every unbeliever has this hardening. This hardening um, means literally like to cover with a callus. So if you play guitar, you get your calluses and your pump because it doesn't hurt anymore, right? And now you have these calluses over your fingers and it doesn't hurt anymore. And he's saying those that are outside of Christ have this covering with callousness or covering with hardness over. Paul uses the word mind here. Other places in the Bible, it talks about heart, but we have a covering of callousness. And he's talking specifically to the Israelites right now. There's a, there's a hardening of the minds of the Israelites because they have not come into the fullness of a knowledge of Christ. Uh, and so there's a, there's a covering of callousness. What this means is um, Paul explains it. He says, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So he's, he's saying that veil that's over Moses' face is like the veil that's over Israel. They can't see who Jesus is. They don't understand it. This means they have not been given the ability by God to understand the new covenant yet. That's sad, right? Paul in Romans 11 explains it this way. He talks about that. He says this uh, in verse 7 through 10. What then? Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel was seeking to know the Lord. And he's saying, Israel, those who are Jewish, whenever at the time Jesus was born, they're actually, and lived, they're failing to obtain what they've been seeking. And Paul says, the elect obtained it, those who have been called, but the rest have been, here it is, hardened. Israel has been hardened, as it is written. This is what God has done to Israel. And this is Romans eleven eight. God has given them a spirit of stupor. Like, there's, there's the good news, but I can't see it because I'm looking at the ground instead of the good news. And I can't look at it because God has given me a spirit of stupor not to be able to be able to look at it. God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear to this very day. As David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened that they cannot see and their backs bent forever. So Israel can't see the glory of the good news of the gospel of the new covenant. Yet, there, as it says, Paul says, their minds are hardened. They have a covering of callousness. As a matter of fact, if you want to know why, why did God do that to Israel? Paul tells us through the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans eleven twenty five. Why is it that Israel has their backs bent right now? He tells us, this is not what you would think, right? Uh, I don't know why, because they're mean and nasty and they, were, they complained all the time and they didn't follow God's law. Well, yeah, but actually there's a different reason given to us by God in 1125, and it's this. Lest you be wise in your sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery of why this is happening, brothers. The hardening, he calls it a partial hardening, has come upon Israel until, here it is, the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So God has this on them because he wants us, Gentiles, he's electing us from all over, causing us to be reborn, causing us to see the glory of Jesus. We're, we're, we're putting our faith in Christ. We're, we're being engrafted into the branches of Israel. We're now becoming Israel for a time. 
And at some point, that's going to end. And then all of a sudden, the floodgates are going to open for Israel and they're going to be saved left and right. There's a day coming when Israel, those who are Jewish, are going to be saved all over the place. God's going to start electing Israel like crazy. But not yet. Right now, he's letting all of us come in. So by looking at all that, this, this covering with callous, callousness over the minds and hearts of them, well, that's also true of us. We also have calloused minds and hearts. And what God has done is he's ripped that callous off and stood us up straight to see the glory of God. And we say, whoa, yes. That's what the new covenant does. It destroys our callous mind. It destroys our callous mind. The veil is over our face and it rips us off. What does this callous mind do to us? This is what the callous mind does to us until Christ rips it off. It deceives us. It makes us think that what we have outside of Christ is just amazing. It makes us think that everything's awesome. It makes us think that life is good and that we've made it and that we don't need anything or anyone in our lives on our own, that we've got this. It makes us think that we have no sin to repent of, no God to fear, and no coming wrath that's going to come upon us. Now, when people start becoming aware of that, that's the loosening of the callus, right? When people start saying, oh man, I feel bad about sin. I feel like I've sinned against something. But until that point, they're just, their backs are bent. It makes us think that Jesus has nothing to offer us except for boredom, and uh, he's only going to take away from us the really cool life that we could live. Better than C.S. Lewis when he writes that this is what hearts do. Uh, no one, I think, captures this idea better than C.S. Lewis when he writes it this way. It's an ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what callous mind, and it gets ripped off, and then you get to see. Stop playing in this dirty mud puddle. Look at this ocean of joy being offered to you at Jesus, and you're finally like, yeah, that is pretty terrible. Look at that. Wow. And we were so content in this mud hole, thinking it's great. But the callousness of our mind makes us think that that's great until that's ripped off, and we see the infinite joy offered to us at Christ. The new covenant destroys that callous mind and helps us see the glory of the new covenant. It destroys infantile thoughts that gives us uh, and gives us a longing for grandeur. It gives us a desire to see God. It removes the veil of our eyes. It It changes our darkened eyes to not finally see the light. That's why we sing, I saw the light. It unbends our backs so that we can see. It removes the spirit of stupor and it destroys, as I said, our callous hearts and mind. Amen. That's what Jesus does whenever we come to know Christ. That's where we are in verse 14. But their minds were hardened. Now, you can see this. Because only through Christ is any of this taken away, right? Verse 14. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains un- uplifted because only, here it is, through Christ is it taken away. That veil remains on all of us unless Christ comes. So what I want you to see here uh, over this next few verses, as Paul talks about the new covenant, is just how Christ-centered everything is. The entire new covenant of the gospel is centered in on specifically the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That, that veil stays on them because through, only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, whenever the law is read, that veil lies over their hearts and they will not uh, come come to Christ. But when one turns to the Lord, that's interesting language, right? Turns to the Lord. That's, that's Jesus Christ. So here's Jesus again. When one turns to the Lord, the veil's ripped away and it removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, here it is, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed to the same image for one degree of another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So over and over and over, he's talking about Jesus and the Lord. And what he's trying to help us see is that the new covenant is thoroughly Christ-centered. Thoroughly Christ-centered. That's number next, six. I think it's six. The new covenant is Christ-centered. I love how Philip 
Hughes explains the Christ-centeredness of this passage. He says, just as in the wilderness, the glory which shone from Moses' face was reflecting the glory of Yahweh, so too on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, um, where Jesus transfigures himself and, and shines in front of his three apostles. And Peter's like, this is great. I'm going to make three tents and a meal for y'all. Like, Peter, just be quiet, dude. This is the transfiguration. This isn't pizza time. Um, anyway, so he's talking about the transfiguration. Just as the wilderness, let's read it again because I destroyed the, the quote. Here it is. Just as the wilderness, in the wilderness, the glory which shone from Moses' face was reflected in the glory of Yahweh, so too on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory with which he was surrounded was the glory of the same Yahweh. The glory turned to him is to turn to the light of the world, to follow him, is to not walk in darkness, but to have the light of life. So the new covenant is thoroughly Christ-centered. It's thoroughly Christ-centered, which means for us, every thought, every action, everything we do should be thoroughly Christ-centered. What should I do? Let me ask Jesus. Should I do this? Does it give glory to Jesus? Everything that we do should be thoroughly Christ-centered. Now, it's difficult because in your heart, there's this throne, right? There's this throne. And most of the time, we try, to, we try to sit on that throne. And what we need to do is rip ourselves off and put Jesus on that throne and say, Jesus is the king of me. He calls the shots. And therefore, every decision I make needs to be with Jesus because the gospel is thoroughly Christ-centered. I need to be thoroughly Christ-centered as well. Now, let's keep going. Verse 15, for Paul to write verse 15, I think absolutely breaks his heart. Yes, to this, remember, Paul's an Israelite, right? Paul loved people who are Jewish. If you read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, he writes like how much it breaks his heart that Israel isn't being saved right now. And he even says, I would even change places with them if I could, that they would come to know Christ, which is an impossible hypothetical. I can talk about that later with you. But he deeply wants Jewish people to come to Jesus, right? We know that. And look what it says in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Meaning, you can read the Old Testament and still get Jesus. Jesus is all in the Old Testament. As he says in John chapter 5, you read them thinking that in them you have life. When they testify about me, 38 or 39, Jesus says in John 5, like the whole Bible is about me. And so when you read Moses, you're supposed to see Jesus, but Israel doesn't see Jesus. And it breaks his heart that this is the case. And he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Notice that. But when, verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And here is where Paul is showing his absolute genius. All right. Thus far, remember what Paul's been doing. He's comparing himself as a minister to Moses. And everybody's got to be like, Paul, what are you doing? You're like saying you're better than Moses. Here's where it's genius. Thus far, as I said, as comparing himself to Moses, they got to just be thinking, is this right? Now, what Paul says, now, when anyone turns to the Lord, they actually become just like me, an unveiled minister. That's the genius part that he's doing to the Corinthians. He's saying, Corinthians, not only is my ministry better than Moses, your ministry is better than Moses. All of us who are in Christ, our ministry is better than Moses because we are unveiled ministers, not veiled ministers. Moses was a veiled minister, but all of us who are in Christ are unveiled ministers. And therefore, the genius part is because remember, there's 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 friction between him and the Corinthians. And he's actually bringing them back together and saying, not only is my ministry more, more better, better than Moses's, you shouldn't say more better. Not only is my ministry better than Moses, so you should listen to me. He's saying, and you too, like you can get in on this genius move by Paul. All of a sudden, reconciliation is really starting to take place. That was loud, sorry. Um, so, like, genius move by Paul. He's telling the Corinthians that y'all are new covenant ministers also, and all because of Jesus. So, turn to him. Turn to the Lord. Corinthians, who are believers, you're over here with me. Corinthians, who aren't believers, turn to the Lord and do that also. Or you who are hearing this, turn to the Lord. Be forgiven by Christ. Now, verse 17. So, uh, if you turn to the Lord, this veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and with the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. 
there is freedom. There's a lot of ways you can go with this, but we want to go Paul's way, right? We want to go Paul's way. So let's just put, out, put it out there, the obvious, right? Number seven, number seven, the new covenant gives freedom. The new covenant gives freedom. But what does that mean? Freedom here is not moral permissiveness, like maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There is a sense in which we talk about that, but that's not what Paul's saying. The freedom here is not moral permissiveness, like I can drink beer if I want to when I'm just not around people that make them stumble. That's not what he's talking about, right? That's 1 Corinthians 8. I can eat meat, sacrificed to idols, just not around the people that bothers them. That's not the freedom. I am in Christ, and so now I am free from condemnation, which was going to come to me. That that condemnation was arising because I had this inability to keep the law of God. And now in Christ, I'm free, free. And you might be saying, well, wasn't, wasn't I free? I didn't know I was, I didn't know I wasn't free. Um, no, you weren't. You weren't free at all. The Bible actually tells us just how unfree we were. Uh, I've got, I came up with five, five ways to show us how much uh, we were prisoners. Five ways. Um, This is how bad it was. We were in bondage to the law, Romans 7, 1 through 6. We were in slavery to sin. I'm sorry, not we're in bondage to the law. We're in slavery to Satan. We're in slavery to Satan, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we followed the prince of the power of the air. So we were in bondage or slavery to the law. We were in slavery to Satan. We were in slavery to fear, Romans 8, 15. We were in slavery to sin, Romans 6, 6 through 7. And we were in bondage to death. Romans 8, 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 15 through 57, where it goes, where death is your sting, that means I was in bondage to death, but now I can look at it and say, death, you got nothing on me. I died once, boom, right back alive with Jesus forever. Death has nothing over. So we were in bondage or slavery to the law, Satan, fear, sin, and death. But now the Holy Spirit has come and caused us to be born again, John chapter 3, and made us free. As Paul writes in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free So stand firm. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery, the slavery of law, Satan, fear, sin, and death. You don't have to be in bondage to that anymore. You don't have to follow Satan. You don't have to follow fear, sin, and death anymore. You've been free from that in Christ. This spirit-empowering freedom now arises because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. So we are free from those things. So don't let Satan or sin or death or fear take over you anymore. It has nothing to do with you anymore. You're free. That's a great, glorious distinction in the new covenant. We're free from all of that. The last one is this. And I, 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 now that I think about it, this was my favorite. This one is mind-blowingly awesome. Verse 18. And we all, let's just stop the we all there. Lots of talk about this through the elders on who we all is. I think this we all in 318 is referring to all Christians for all time. All Christians may approach the Lord as Moses did when he went up to Mount Sinai into the presence of the Lord. And we all, this we all is all Christians. Um, I think Paul's taking a big step back in 18 and saying, everybody who's a believer, we all. All right, here it is. And we all with unveiled face. Remember, he's juxtaposing all of us to Moses. We all now in Christ have this unveiled face. And what are we doing with unveiled face? Beholding, there, there, can be, there can be in the Greek a little a parenthetical supply after beholding as, as in a mirror. Beholding as in a mirror. So the beholding is like, there's a mirror and I'm looking into the mirror. Beholding as in a mirror, this is where it's awesome. This is where it's mind-blowing. The glory of the Lord. Think about that for a second. I'm looking in a mirror, which means I'm looking at myself and I am not... <laughs> I'm not glorious, right? But I'm looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Think about what that means that Jesus has done in your life. I'm looking in a mirror at myself. And as I look in the mirror at myself, I'm beholding the glory of the Lord. Think about all the implications about what that means that Jesus has done in your life. Beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And what is this beholding doing? It's bringing about your sanctification. Watch this. Are being transformed into what? The same image. So then there, I'm not beholding myself exactly. When I look in the mirror, I am seeing Jesus, but I'm looking in a mirror. So that means 
Christ's righteousness really has been given to me. And as I look in the mirror, I'm supposed to be seeing myself. I see the glory of the Lord staring into this mirror, which is supposed to be me, but really the glory of the Lord. That, that beholding of that actually transforms me and causes me to be more Christ-like. That's what it's saying. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. So that means when I'm looking into the, the mirror, I'm not seeing me. I'm not being transformed into the image of Bud. That's growing nothing, right? If I'm transformed into the same image, that means I'm looking at Jesus in the mirror. But still, all the implications are still present. Think about what that means that Jesus is doing in you. From one degree of glory to another. That means there's growing degrees of sanctification happening in my life. For this comes from the Lord. All that's possible because of the Spirit. So, number eight... The new covenant is transforming. It's transforming. Metamorpho is this word transforming. Obviously, this is where we get our word metamorphosis. The key here to the Christian life and sanctification is that it's progressive sanctification. It's not all at once sanctification. It's not like Christian all the way saved, like all the way sanctified. No, no, no. It's progressive sanctification. It's unsaved, and now I'm becoming more and more... I don't have to tell you that. You know that, right? You know that you're not like fully sanctified. You know that you have, as Paul says in Romans 7, you know, sin working itself out in you. But this transformed means, refers to the progressive sanctification that's happening. The Christian life is a continual process of growing more and more into the image of the Lord, ascending, as it were, from one degree of glory to another. That's happening now. That's not just in heaven. That's supposed to be happening now in our life. We want to be transformed. It, let me ask you this. Do you want to be transformed? Hopefully you'd say yes, right? And you would say, how? And I would say, behold. That's how. Behold. And you're like, okay. What does that mean? Behold. This is what it means. Let me show you. And let's just all thank John Calvin for pointing this out to me. I don't know how many years ago, and it's just stuck with me and it's awesome. I've already started talking about it, but uh, the beholding of the Lord is literally the catalyst of being transformed or being sanctified. Beholding. So beholding means as in a mirror, as it said. So this changes everything. Instead of, if I tell you to behold, you're wanting to walk outside and look up and behold the glory. I'm going to be transformed by beholding God's glory. And he's not telling us to go outside and look up. It's telling us to behold as in a mirror. And so literally, we behold in the mirror. The word beholding here is, pre- this is kind of nerdy, but it's present passive middle participle. That means um, it's happening to you. It's passive. It, you're not doing it. So the, the sanctification is God doing it to you, but it's present passive middle participle, which means it's continually happening. I'm doing it, and when I start doing it, it's happening continually forever. It has a starting point, but no ending point ever. Until I'm in heaven one day. So this beholding means as I'm beholding, I'm looking at something and it's passively happening to me. That's, that's why he says this comes from the Lord who is the spirit and it's always happening forever. Which means your sanctification is never taking a vacation. It's always happened. The Lord is holding, beholding. Meaning, the verse is showing us three things, Calvin says. God is face to face with us. As we behold him in a mirror, showing us himself. God is face to face with us. As we look at ourselves, he's showing us himself. Number two, we must actively then therefore pursue the beholding of the glory of the Lord as often as we can. That the easiest way is to see yourself in the mirror of the God's word and then let him show you who you are in Christ. Right? Number three, this is all from Calvin. This is not an instantaneous act, but instead progressive. We must be patient as we're being sanctified, continually seek the knowledge of God so that we can continually conform into his image. Number eight, then, is that the new covenant is transforming. It's transforming. Um, Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we're commanded there to be transformed. And that is by beholding what the Lord is doing. We are being transformed. That's amazing. So then what does this mean? What does this mean? This is what it means. That we, as we talk about these aspects of the gospel, we revel and we glory in these 
eight great truths. There's a whole lot more, right? But let's just look, talk about these. We revel and we glory in these truths. We celebrate and we rejoice that these things are true of us. We delight and we treasure in Jesus for bringing these things about. And if you want a, a, a conclusion as far as like application, here's your application. Live therefore, live therefore like men and women that have been given life. Live therefore like men and women that have been given Jesus's righteousness. Live as men and women who glory in the permanence of the gospel because it's forever. Live like we really have a living hope that makes you, makes you bold. Live because we have had our callous minds destroyed and now we have soft hearts towards Christ. Live as one who actually have been given freedom from Satan, fear, death. Live as one who is really being transformed by beholding forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, I know it was a long talk today, but I do pray that the length of it wasn't too uh, difficult, but that uh, we all were given um, an extra measure of attention by the Holy Spirit to, to see these glorious truths of the gospel. Thank you so much, Christ, for giving your life for us so that we can have these unbelievable things to be true of us. And now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, I pray, God, that uh, the beauty of these truths of the gospel uh, would be ever-present right now in our hearts and minds. And that as we turn to the supper um, and think on your body broken and your blood shed, um, that you would use this to uh, bring about a great spiritual nourishment in our souls, um, reminding us of the good news of the gospel. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.